Welcome to Assembly Point, a brand new monthly podcast by the Fire Protection Association. The devastating circumstances of the Grenfell Tower tragedy brought the subject of fire safety into sharp focus. But has anything changed since that day in 2017? What is being done to ensure that everyone involved in the design, construction and management of buildings, as well as those who occupy them, understands their role in minimising the risks? Our host for the series is Howard Passy, the FPA's Director of Operations and respected fire industry professional. From legislative change, updated guidance and improving safety standards to the need for greater education and training, join us as we talk with experts and influencers from across industries to move the debate on fire safety forwards and identify ways to work together to improve standards. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the FPA's Assembly Point podcast. I'm your host, Howard Passy. It's a real pleasure to be joined today by Catherine Levin, political editor at Fire Magazine. Catherine, thank you for taking time to meet with me today. Um, Firstly, for our listeners, could you start by giving us a little background on your career in fire safety? Sure. Um, First of all, I'd just like to say thank you very much for inviting me onto the podcast today. It's very nice to be here. Um, So in terms of my background, um, so I'm currently political editor at Fire Magazine. I do that on a part-time basis. I've been writing for Fire Magazine since 2013. Um, Fire Magazine is a subscription magazine that's available to UK Fire and Rescue Services and others in the sector and um, covers a whole range of subjects within the fire service, uh, right through the prevention, protection, response um, and uh, resilience field. Um, Prior to um, writing for Fire Magazine, I used to work for London Fire Brigade, where I was Deputy Head of Community Safety. I did that for three years. And before that, I'd been in the civil service for a long time, where I spent time working on fire policy, working on legislation, things to do with prevention and protection, and um, some work on the fire safety order as well. So that's a, a brief uh, trip through my background. Sure, lots of lots of time in fire then, in in one way, shape, and form, which is uh, yeah, which is which is great. This month, June twenty twenty one, it marks four years since the the tragic events at Grenfell Tower, and I think that's a a series of images that most of us are, are never going to forget. Um, in your opinion, how much was this a turning point for fire safety reform in the UK? Well, that's a very good question. I. I think, first of all, I'd just like to kind of recall in my mind that day for myself in my home, which is maybe 15 minutes from, from Grenfell by um, public transport. So for me, it's it's a very, it's, it's an area I know in London, um, having seen that on TV, the utter shock, um, like many, many people, everybody who watched it on TV, to be able to see that in modern London and just think how on earth could something like that happen? It's just awful. And my heart goes out to all the people who are affected for those bereaved survivors um, and residents of the area. It's it's kind of hard to forget. Um, So here we are four years on, as you say. Um, Yes, very much so. Grandfather is a tipping point. I think there's lots of reasons for that. Um, I think the first one for me is about how the media treated it and how fire was on the front page of every newspaper on the television you couldn't get away from it for such a long period of time and i'm not sure that had really happened before in this country that fire had such a high profile um so i think that put fire into people's minds something that perhaps fire had been something that you wouldn't think about day to day you know it was something remote and so i think from 
a tipping point point of view, it put it into people's consciousness in a way that had never been there before. And in terms of a, from the political point of view, I think that the government had spent a long time on fire in the early 2000s, in 2004 with the Fire Risk Service Act, with the Regulatory Fire Safety Reform Order. And it was almost as if it was job done and that fire became the thing that was in the background. Um, and 2017, fire comes into sharp relief again. And so we get the legislation that's starting to come through. So there's a tipping point from the government point of view. And then I think about how the Fire and Rescue Services has responded. Um, I mean, I was working uh, briefly with the National Operational Guidance Programme and how all of the new guidance for the service, very, very important post um, uh, Grenfell in terms of what was available to Fire and Rescue Services to improve their response. Um, and then you think about the people in buildings, so those responsible for buildings are now really, really thinking about what it means to be a responsible person, what it means to construct a building that is fire safe, um, those refurbishing, those constructing. Um, so I think it's it's become a, it's a very complex tipping point from lots of different points of view within fire. It's not just about the service. It's not just about people living in the buildings. It's this whole uh, collection of things, the totality of it, that's really important that we get it right. Uh, and I think, you know, before Grandfather, we never really thought about residents, never really thought about residents' voice. I must admit that's not a term I'd ever heard or read or wrote about before Grandfather. So it really, really brought into, you know, really sharp focus how important residents are in, in all of that. Um, so I think, you know, looking back on fire history, we have Black and White, I'm going to talk about that shortly. Um, but we think about King's Cross in 1987. So I had a little look at uh, the Fennell report, Desmond Fennell, um, who, who led that inquiry where 31 people died in the King's Cross fire in 1987. Um, it sat for 91 days, uh, made 157 recommendations, and within two years there was new legislation in place. And then we look where we are now with Grenfell. We have the Grenfell inquiry. We have a QC, uh, you know, a retired QC le leading that inquiry. And we're still in the inquiry two years later. And we've had some legislation change. So it has happened before. We do have precedent. But for all the reasons I've outlined, I do think it is a massive tipping point. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you make a really interesting point there about the, the, the resident's voice, because you're absolutely correct. You know, residents have been the poor relation, I think, um, very much in, in, in respect to fire safety, whereas a legislative perspective and, and maybe even a moral one, um, residents have absolutely been the focus of legislative requirements, um, building regulation requirements. It's it's predominantly about means of escape. You know, we've, we've explored on earlier podcasts the you know, looking towards building and property protection outside of that legislative environment and the, the means of escape um, requirements and keeping residents safe. Um, but in this instance, it, it, it seems to me that um, they have been poorly, poorly served. Um, and I know as, you know, personally as, a, as an individual, and I reflect uh, quite often on, you know, the role that the fire sector has played in, in not getting things right so far. Now, you know, I know that we're driven by legislative requirements. Um, I know that we're driven by um, building regulation and approved document B and, and, and those sorts of things. And, and I don't think the blame sits firmly in, at anybody's door. And I think that's quite evident from the examples you've provided in terms of fire and rescue service, building and construction industries, fire safety professionals and such like, all needing to make a change in what they do to, you know, to, to, to resolve issues. Um, it sort of brings me on to the next question, which sort of reflects on a, an article you wrote 
just a week after the Grenfell fire um, in 2017. Um, and you said that the sector needed to do some real soul searching about the direction it was heading in. What's your view about the extent to which this has happened? You've already made reference to the Fennel Report, King's Cross fire and, and Lackenhall and such like. Um, do you think we're learning lessons? Yes, I think I think to a certain extent the um, the government response and the inquiry means that we we can't not ask those questions of ourselves. Um, so soul searching. You know, I wrote that a few days after the fire, um, and in fact I, I reread the, the piece that I did, and I, I focused very much on prevention at that stage because it was very much about why did the fire start in the first place. But actually, everything has been about how the fire spread. Um, quite different in terms of the policy response. Something I've thought about a lot since the fire is about how we were very focused on fire prevention and we were very focused on home fire safety visits and reducing fires, uh, fire deaths, injuries and damage in the home um, and government put a lot of money into that um, and protection kind of got put to one side um, and now we see the everything's flipped now we, we've come to a different point in the cycle and i wonder if um maybe we're neglecting prevention for protection at the moment i, I think we've all had to do some soul searching and and of course as we recognize you know in any aspect of fire safety it's not about getting one thing right it's about that combination being correct and if one part of the system isn't working the way it should do then every part will fall over um and I think that, you know, maybe we've not been getting even one part right in some circumstances here. And, um, you know, we, we, we do need to look forward and think very carefully about how we're going to do things going forward. And, and I think we're going to be driven in that direction by, you know, by legislative change and, and, and new guidance and such like. But you mentioned a little bit earlier on the, the, the Lackanall house fire in 2009, um, where six people lost their lives. Um, in what was then the, the worst tower block fire seen in the UK, the subsequent inquest found that it could have been prevented by proper fire safety checks and certain recommendations were made, um, which were not fully followed up or actioned. Um, do you think that the lack of action there and the resulting fire at Grenfell has led to increased scepticism from the public? And, and what do you think the industry can do to build back trust in the system? That's interesting with Lacknow that the um, so the Lacknow fire was two thousand nine. The um, coroner-led inquiry um, published the results in March twenty thirteen. So this is Frances Kirkham. Um, in terms of the recommendations, when I look at those from her letter to the Secretary of State at the time, she wrote different ones, but I've looked at that one in particular. Um, it's interesting to look at those recommendations and see what actually was implemented and what is still outstanding and and how that looks post Grenfell. Um, so we take, I'll just take three of them as an example. So one of them is um, GRA 3.2, so the General Risk Assessment on High-Rise Firefighting has now been updated as part of the National Operational Guidance Programme, but that was only in the last 18 months, maybe two years. So it took a long time to get there. Um, premises information boxes for high-rises, she recommends that in 2013. That's a Grenfell recommendation now. So hopefully we'll see that appearing in the Building Safety Bill. But again, that's that's a long time coming. And the other one, which is is interesting, although I am no expert in um, building regulations or ADB, but it does say here a ADB is a, a approved document to be on fire safety to make it intelligible. And I think that's that's an interesting 
recommendation in itself there's more to it but i picked that bit out because it is about making understandable for people um so that uh, uh it can be as good as it should be i don't know what your view is on that howard but um uh it's a very thick document and people talk about it an awful lot but i don't know how intelligible it is so no, you're absolutely right. I think that the government does have a bit of a track record in not necessarily being able to um, provide guidance in such a way as, as to make it usable. Um, and I think sometimes for them, the focus on the audience is lost. You know, people need to need to be able to understand this. Um, I remember doing some training um, here at the Fire Service College many, many moons ago, and we, we went through what was then the blue guide to... Um, the Fire Precautions Act, um, which dealt with certain types of premises, went through approved document B. And the degree of annotation that was required in those two guidance documents in order for you to know the various references, how you had to reflect back from one section to another to properly understand what the requirement was, um, some of the um, the definitions that needed some interpretation and such like. And it's never been a particularly easy document to read. Uh, but it is interesting, you know, the looking at those recommendations that you highlighted there and the fact that they are common to what we've seen within Grenfell. And we could look further at, you know, issues around competency of fire risk assessors and how that's been brought to the fore, as well as competency amongst everybody involved in the um, in the design, build, management, risk assessment of, of, of premises going forward. And although there was development of competency standard for fire risk assessments, it really was just a list of things that a fire risk assessor should know um, and didn't really take it as far as it should have done, as, as maybe we're seeing through, you know, the work that um, Working Group 4 has done most recently in the ACOP that's been published by the Fire Sector Federation to, to try and put a bit of um, body, I suppose, around those those requirements. And I wonder, in terms of building back trust, I think there's something about how um, inquiries are done as well and how the public, in particular, you talk about industry behaviour, but I think it's also about trust with the public around the fact that the Lacanel file had a coroner-led inquiry. It didn't have a public inquiry in the same way that Grenfell has. Um, and that uh, the 46 recommendations seems to be taken much more seriously by government and by others, um, an indication of which being that government has now published two quarterly reports on work going on for each of the 46 recommendations, which I've not seen before, which I think is really important because it puts it in the public public space. It's transparent and shows what work is being done. Um, so I think, you know, in order for recommendations from these inquiries to be impactful, they need to be uh, achievable, have ownership, be audited, make sure they're going to happen. And then if, not, if they don't happen, what are the sanctions? What will happen if a recommendation is not fulfilled and not met? Will we be in the same position in, in a five years time having a conversation about grandfather and saying we'll be having this conversation about Lacanel, um, you know, at 12 years Sloppy. after Lacanel? And, uh, you know, um, so, so I suppose that the only uh, positive I can see there is around the fire, fire escapehood recommendation, which was around um, uh, that all fire risk services should invest in them, so they call them fire, uh, fire escape hoods. And um, now we start to see them being used. So pretty lots of fire services, I think every single one of them has them, have bought fire escape hoods. They're using them, uh, they're putting them with their BA sets, they're putting them on appliances, 
and um, they're being used. You're starting to see more and more examples of them being used, and in particular on the May 7th fire in New Providence Wharf, where the fire investigation report from the London Fire Brigade confirmed that 22 fire escape hoods were used during that, um, that um, fire. So you can see a positive from the recommendations, um, but uh, a lot of them are very obscure and people won't understand them, but they're all, in their totality, they will make a difference. We talked a little bit about Grenfell and we've, we've also looked at the um, the inquiry, but the, the independent review into Grenfell that was undertaken by Dame Judith Hackett highlighted some significant flaws in the provision of fire safety. Um, will the proposals outlined in the, in the draft building safety bill and those that are either now law within the Fire Safety Act or, or potentially anticipated to be brought into legislation be enough to make meaningful change or do you think that further action might be needed? Well, that's quite a big question. Um, so <laughs> we talked earlier about legislation and um, how it happens after large events. We saw it after King's Cross. Um, we'll, we'll see it. We're seeing it now after Grenfell. Um, so in terms of Fire Safety Act, I mean, there is some really important things in there. Um, around uh, particularly uh, registers for fire risk assessments, uh, clarifying the common parts, uh, the external wall system. So I think that that's important that that, that act has now come, come into law, although we know that there's still a little bit of work to be done to actually get it all into uh, working as, as we'd wish. Um, the building safety bill, it's enormous. Um, I, I can't get over what a large piece of legislation it is. Um, uh, but again, it takes Dame Judith's report, it takes the significant parts from that and puts them into law in an important way, um, introducing things like duty holders, enshrining the golden thread. So I think it will lead to meaningful change. It will take time. It's going to take a long time to get that through Parliament, I think. Um, but it does show that there is progress being made. So in uh, the September 2020 edition of Fire Magazine, we gave the key players in the fire sector space to talk about the bill uh, in the pre-legislative phase and to tell us what they thought about uh, the bill. Um, the NFCC talked to us about the bill, but that it should apply to all high-risk premises, not just a particular group at a particular height. Um, the FBU talked to us about the cost of regulation on um, fire risk authorities, about having to do more enforcement, having more um, role, a larger role within the, the whole space of, of fire safety regulation. Um, so I think for me, it's important that um, all of this legislation has scrutiny. So we've seen that already in terms of um, the committee, so the select committee led by Clive Betts MP, who leads the um, uh, Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government Select Committee. He did um, some very good evidence sessions, I thought, in, in Parliament uh, some time ago about the bill, looking at it all and, and, and really unpicking it to see whether it really was doing the job that, that Judith Hackett uh, asked, us, asked to be done. Um, and that line by line scrutiny, I think, is really important. And we see that continuing with um, Clive Betts writing to government about the EWS one forms, about the external wall systems and whether that system is working. So I think for me, um, it's good to have the legislation coming through. It's going to take an awful long time. It requires a lot of scrutiny and it requires that outside view that it shouldn't just be about the legislators because we do have you know the reality is we have a government with an 80, 80 majority 
and so getting legislation through will be much easier than if they were still dependent on uh, perhaps the DUP as they were before. So um, I think the, um, the meaningful change is coming. It's slow, but I think the intent is there. Um, it's just really whether, you know, the, the detail, the devil in the detail, as both uh, Roy Wilshire and Sir Ken Knight said during the pre-legislative scrutiny when they were talking to the select committee, said it's in the secondary legislation. And that's where the detail is. And that has less scrutiny in terms of Parliament. So I think that's where people really have to be very, very um, uh, talking to their MPs, talking to, you know, lobbying Parliament to say, you know, we really need to make sure this detail is right, um, because that will be further down the line. Um, so I think you know, there's, a, it's, it's, there's a lot to be done. Mm. Do you think the, um, the message in terms of let's focus on risk, let's not necessarily just focus on the height of a building is is being is being received no no uh, I, I see government messaging still very much about height 11 meters 18 meters whatever the other context is but um it doesn't seem to be about risk uh, which is odd because when you saw the fire risk services act 2004 going through it was always about risk integrated risk management plans fire risk services base their planning on risk and put their resources to risk and yet we see legislation around buildings being based on height and not about who uses them or who lives there, what activities take place there. So, yeah, this is a bit of a mixed message, I think. Mm, mm, yeah, I agree. Absolutely. You mentioned it just a few moments ago, but the government recently opposed uh, an amendment to the fire safety bill, which was intended to protect leaseholders from um, or those that are living in unsellable and potentially dangerous high rise homes from um, from financial ruin. Um how important is it that leaseholders in all affected buildings are supported, regardless of a building's height? And what impact does this have on fire safety, do you think? Well, I mean, we, we, we've kind of touched on that, as you say, um, in terms of it shouldn't be about the height. Um, we know that the Grenfell Tower fire started on the fourth floor, for example. Um, we have um, the fire at Providence Wharf started on the eighth floor. Um, so fire it starts in different parts of buildings but the risk um risk changes obviously height affects risk and you can't say they're completely separate things but to only talk about height just seems very one sort of single-minded i think um i kind of understand it from a political point of view because it's it's about money it's about cost it's going to cost a fortune to bring all buildings into scope of new legislation so you can understand why they put the limitation in there um, so, but I think the lobby is right, you know, wherever the lobby is coming from is to keep pushing for, for risk over height. Um, so uh, in terms of leaseholders, well, we see the NDR cladding scandal campaign, um, which I have to say is incredibly impressive. Um, the fact that you can bring together disparate residents living across the country in completely different developments, heights, um, all coalescing around this one problem, which is we don't want to pay for fire safety defects in our buildings that we weren't responsible for. It's not our fault. And they're absolutely right. Um, so it's it just um, the government is trying, is putting money out there. But again, I refer back to what we talked about with Clive Betts earlier in scrutiny. Um, his report said that uh, the five billion pound, five billion a pound figure for remediation that the government you know, has said we put that much money forward. And the, the select committee is saying it's more like 15 billion. So there's a, that's a huge gap between the two things. Something's wrong in the way that the scope is being drawn here. Um, and then I think with the, this, the campaign, 
the crowdsourcing of what they're doing, the bringing people together, the uh, their willingness and ability to use social media is is very powerful. Um, every time there's any reference from any minister, you know, my, my Twitter feed is full of um, campaigners, and rightly so, they are doing a fantastic job at raising awareness every opportunity they can. Um, the, the the fire, the, the Providence Wall fire, has been a, 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 um, a an example of that you know, a reminder of how you know, the problem of what fire causes but the danger and also that um you know buildings fail that building we saw the fire investigation report from london fire brigade come out and it said that um the ventilation system didn't work this is a new building a relatively new building why doesn't the ventilation system work um so um you know fire safety it, it's not just about cladding either it's a talk about um uh that the leaseholder conversation is about cladding and the link back to Grenfell but it's not just about the cladding and I think uh, we need to think about um conversations about you know wooden balconies um, about fire doors about fire stopping all of those things the hidden things the venting the bits and pieces people don't say um that they have to all work and they have to be checked and it is important to be done oh no I think I, I think I agree with you I think that that, that there are many facets to, to getting fire safety right, and yes, at the moment the you know the focus is on on cladding, and, and quite rightly it should be. Um, however, you know we also know that um, the Grenfell incident was a, a combination of factors. Um, yeah, for you know electrical piece of equipment going pop, fire spreading into the um, fire spreading onto the cladding. However, if the compartmentation had worked internally and the fire doors had acted the way they should have done, then people would have had a lot longer and would have been a lot safer in that building to to evacuate. Yes, I know there were you know issues around um, evacuation strategies and who understood what, but um, there were other features there that should have done a job and they and they just didn't sadly uh, but, but i also agree with you in terms of the way the campaign's working definitely with with an awful lot of assistance from clive betts as you've mentioned helping to keep everybody honest and keep everybody focused and and ensuring that um things aren't being swept under the carpet and that every effort um is being challenged to ensure that it's it's taking us in the in the right direction i suppose which is which is commendable but again really interestingly reflects right back to the beginning of our conversation when you talked about the, the role of social media and, and media in general um in 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 pushing this forward you know and making sure it remains in the in the in the in the public eye yes and the other thing i would add to that is that the um uh, campaign to amend the fire safety bill as it was by putting in a new clause which talked about uh, the costs of remediation not falling with the leaseholder um, that amendment failed despite ping-ponging between lords and commons um, it, was, it was a valiant effort um, I suppose my concern now is where do we put that is it is there a space in the building safety bill for an amendment like that and will this will we see a repeat of this as we go forward with the bill? I don't know, but I just wonder what the the end point is in terms of working out where the responsibility lies for those payments because it's just not viable to have people paying tens of tens of thousands of pounds for fire safety remediation on buildings and, and not being able to sell because they can't get forms that don't you know that say that they've got cladding on their buildings. So. I just wonder where, what the way forward is now. I'm interested to see how the the the, um, the government takes this forward. Yeah, I'd be interested to see how it does unfold. I, I think you know their comments were that it was unworkable. Um, 
the amendment was unworkable and uh, I think it was probably more to do with the amount of money it was going to cost. You're talking there about the the, the building safety bill, um, which which highlights and identifies duty holders who face increasing pressure, not only to act competently, um, but also to provide evidence of their own or others' competence too. Um, Despite this, um, some research that we undertook as part of our uh, Know Your Building campaign identified that nearly a fifth of organisations either don't check the competency of contractors to do the job or don't know if it's been checked. Um, How big a factor do you think competence is when it comes to ensuring that an event like Grenfell never happens again? This is a really interesting question, given what we've heard from the Grenfell inquiry in the the module, uh, module three. Um, Carl Stokes was the fire risk assessor for Grenfell Tower and through the evidence questioning from Richard Millett QC, the lead counsel, it quickly became clear that his qualifications were misleading. He wrote into his fire risk assessments a a load of um, um, shorthand, uh, post-nominals, I think that the inquiry called them, Um, and when you looked them up, and in fact I did, um, I, I read the fire risk assessment before he came to do his evidence, and I looked up all of the qualifications and I couldn't make, I couldn't find out what they were. They didn't mean anything. So I think there's something there about you can be a fire risk assessor, you can um, be employed and you can say that you've done something. But unless somebody looks at what you've said and checks it, then you can say anything. And I think that's that says an awful lot about um, people who are contracting the service to be good, good customers. Um, and to be able to check things Um, and in order to check things they need some third-party validation because you know people don't know anything about fire engineering or fire risk assessment or whatever qualifications that people have talked about and so I think that in order for um, competence to be something that people are confident in they need to know that somebody else has said yes that's right that is valid and and we're talking about third-party certification so somebody else has to say yes this is valid uh, the professional bodies like BIBA or the IFE or um, these organisations have people who are members of them and have certain qualifications and competence and be able to say, yes, I have this experience and I'm able to do this job for you. Um, so I wondered when I was thinking about this question, whether it was worth thinking about something like the Institute for Fire Risk Assessors whether maybe such a thing exists already, I'm not sure it does, but um, whether you could have something like that, which would you be a, a member of, a chartered member of, and it would have a, you know, a range of qualifications that you could could show to your to your um, clients. Um, maybe you could do a degree in fire risk assessment. Uh, why not have an apprenticeship? And there's plenty of apprenticeships emerging in the fire and rescue service, so why not have one? You've got one for enforcing officer in, in the fire service, so why not have one for fire risk assessor outside the fire service? So, Competence is really interesting just in terms of that balance between the person buying the service, the person supplying the service and being confident that what you're getting what you think you're getting, because it's so important to get it right, as, as we have seen. Mm, absolutely. I, I think it's a, you know, it's a shame that, that the fire risk assessor didn't represent himself better, I think, um, because certainly in terms of the qualifications he's got, um, and I, I think as the inquiry brought out, um, many of them are really relevant. And, and really support um, his development as a competent fire risk assessor. But the fact he chose to use this complicated list of abbreviations as a, as a series of post-nominals um, clearly muddied the waters quite significantly. Um, and I, but I think it's interesting that 
following the lack of all fire, some of the some of the work that was done on competency led to production of uh, guidance for um, those purchasing fire risk assessment services, and you know gave them a bit of a steer in terms of what they needed to be looked for. But again, with so much of that information, it's about being able to disseminate it effectively and make pe- make sure people appreciate what they've got or what they need to be looking for. I think the backstop of third-party certification and independent qualifications, which clearly lead to a, a recognised position, um, has, has got to be a far better safety net, I suppose, um, in terms of competency, not just for fire risk assessors, but for you know for anybody involved in the, in the fire firmament, I suppose, um, in ensuring that they can show that they're bringing the very best to the table. Yes, I suppose one um, consequence, I think, of... Um, Grenfell and what we've heard in terms of the inquiry is that those people who are specifying the need for fire safety services, fire assessments being part of that, um, may now start to over-specify and to overcompensate, looking for people who have different qualifications or, for instance, um, asking a fire engineer to do a job which doesn't require a fire engineer. So it's just in terms of how do we make sure that when uh, contracts are out there in in public space we have a lot of contracts at the moment for um, social housing providers looking for fire safety um, people that they're not over specifying because the problem is is if you over specify and you have people who have the wrong top qualifications or are just simply overqualified that they um, suck them into one part of the sector and then you have nobody left elsewhere where they should be. I just wonder whether there's enough people to go around to do the job we need to do. I think a lot of people are nervous. You know, I have spoken to somebody quite recently, actually, who said that they, they're looking for a different kind of role in fire um, until such a point as the dust settles, I suppose. Legislation is developed and implemented and everybody knows how it's working because at the moment I think people are finding it a, a little bit tricky but you know the, the point you make about having the right level of competency for the task you're undertaking I think that's also very important I know that a lot of organizations have have seen you know fire engineers as being the top of the tree um, and they need to you know punt for fire engineering services in support of their fire risk assessment work or in support of the development of fire strategies but um, personally I think that that's that's wholly incorrect um, it needs to be horses for courses um, you know if a fire risk assessor is expected to have competencies which ensure that they understand um, approved document B as difficult as that might be and 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 how to apply it um, then they clearly can you know undertake assessment work in buildings that um, were designed and developed to, to that standard and similarly that step from an approach that uses approved document B to one that uses BS 9999 you know neither of those are fire engineering approaches although BS 9999 and 991 could be argued as being sort of hybrid I suppose um, but fire engineers don't do fire risk assessments it's the same as fire and rescue service enforcing officers don't do fire risk assessments. They they do a different piece of work, and and I think that the, the, the market probably does need to understand that you know you need to appoint the right people for the type of work that you need doing, and that uh, you know a fire engineer may not necessarily, despite their qualifications and experience, be able to give you the the level of service that you require for your you know for your particular development premises, whatever it, whatever it might be. But we'll, you know, we'll have to see how that plays out and see whether that message gets through. Uh, right at the start of the 
this episode, you talked about your role as political editor for Fire magazine. Um, the UK's Fire and Rescue Services obviously play a critical role in, in, in the community. They're responsible for attendance of fire in- incidents, managing community fire safety activities and enforcement, which is especially important with high, with high-risk groups and high-risk buildings. Despite this, they have been subject to significant challenges, including impacts of stringent budget cuts and resulting resource issues. Given the forthcoming changes to planning and construction processes, is more support required to ensure that local fire and rescue services have the resources to undertake effectively liaison and enforce fire safety action, particularly with negligent building owners? That's a good question. Um, so <clears throat> fire and rescue services get their money from government and from local taxpayers. They have to determine how to spend their money based on their integrated risk management plans, uh, based on risk, and they take the resources, work out what the risk is, and then work out how they're going to meet that risk through for their local community. And that's the, the fundamental way in which fire risk services work. Um, when the inspectorate came into fire risk services and um, looked at their the, how they were doing this, they found that actually in the protection area, so the uh, enforcing the fire safety order um, they were very under resourced they didn't have the people doing the amount of work that should be done um, and in fact in the 2019 state of fire report from her majesty's inspector of fire they said uh, two-thirds of services were either under resourcing their protection and prevention teams or couldn't give a clear rationale for disproportionately low levels of activity in these areas um, and then provided some very interesting data about uh, the number of audits being carried out by fire safety inspecting officers in fire risk services, which showed that 10 years ago, um, there were just over 80,000 audits rounding uh, for, for this. Uh, and then nearly 10 years later, it's down to just under 50,000. So you can see just from those simple figures that fire risk services were not putting the resource into inspecting buildings under the fire safety order. Uh, it had gone down and down and down um, because in terms of their planning, they were putting their resources elsewhere. Um, and so the inspectorate has picked up on that and Framfell has made it very clear that it's very important to um, have enough resources in fire risk services to inspect the buildings. Um, to do the, the, the firefighters doing the, the 72D inspection. So this is the, you know, checking for risks in their area, the inspecting officers going along and enforcing the fire safety order. So in order to do that, they need to have the right level of money. And um, I don't know that they're going to be getting a, a big slug of money from the government in their next uh, uh, comprehensive spending review allocations. Um, there has been a little bit of extra money. So there's been money from the government from the building risk review to look at so they can fire services can specifically look at high-risk buildings in their in their area um, but that's a, a one-off it's not going to add be added to their general budgets um, so i think that um, the inspectorate says there's not enough staff uh, not enough audits going on so hopefully we'll start to see that ticking up um, we have i think i mentioned earlier about the apprenticeship scheme so you can have an apprentice fire uh, inspecting officer which i think will bring new blood into fire services because you don't have to be an operational officer to do fire safety inspections so it allows for um 
people to come into the service with a from a different uh, background and go up through the service in a different way and it should be just as legitimate a route to go up through that as you do through the operational ranks um so uh i think once once it'll take time i think it's it's a it's a long-term shift we're looking for here um to see that enough resources going into the inspection process if the building safety bill leads to pharmacy services having to do more at different stages of the building's life cycle, then that will have financial impact. And therefore, the government will have to look at doing some kind of impact assessment to see what difference that makes to the funding settlement for pharmacy services to enable them to do that new legislative role, the new burden effectively on the services from those new roles. But again, we, we don't see the detail on that yet, but I can see that being an issue as we go through. And Pharmacy authorities will be lobbying for the um, money to go with the new burden for sure. Mm. I, I, I can't see any way past it. You know, we recognise that foreign rescue services have been underfunded, or at least, at least have had their funding cut significantly over over so many years. Um, and yes, you could argue that you know when you look at the volume of fire deaths and and how that has in general terms reduced over over the years if you take the you know the bigger incidents out um they've clearly done an exceptional job in in in, in achieving that uh but to suddenly take on additional responsibilities which are sure to arise with a, a new enforcing authority a new enforcement regime with four you know four gateways to you know to uh, to input into I, I can't see any other option but but like you say it'd be interesting to see how the government square that particular circle Thank you again for taking time to speak with us today and sharing your insights on fire safety reform and the monumental impact of Grenfell. You've brought to the fore some some really interesting points and some certainly many that we haven't touched on previously. And in particular, I think your your reflections on um, how social media and the media in general has impacted and and the work of of certain interest groups. Um, and, and individuals is really having an impact here uh, that we may not have seen in the past uh, and how maybe even government is is looking to act slightly different in this instance as a result of that um, or maybe just that they recognise that significant change is required um, but, but thank you again. Um, we would like to dedicate this episode to the 72 people who lost their lives in the fire and will continue calling for change to help ensure these events never happen again. To make sure you don't miss out on future episodes, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a review. Thank you for listening to the FPA's Assembly Point podcast, created as part of our Know Your Building campaign. To hear more episodes or for more information and resources on Know Your Building, which is helping building owners and managers reduce the risk of fire, please visit www.thefpa.co.uk and search Know Your Building.